We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church this evening. We're glad that you're here. We have folks on both sides of the uh, auditorium here. That's nice. Very good. Our scripture reading tonight is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down, and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. You might want to commit that phrase to memory. For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It's often used in the Old Testament, isn't it? Psalm, what is it, 136, and a number of other places. It's just a good truth to have. Uh, and here they're using it as a worshipful exclamation about our Lord. Verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests attended to their services, and the Levites also with the instruments of music of the Lord, which King David had made to praise the Lord, saying, For his mercy endures forever whenever David offered praise by their ministry. The priests sounded trumpets opposite them while all Israel stood. Furthermore, Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat. At that time, Solomon kept the feast seven days and all Israel with him a very great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a sacred assembly, for they observed the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the twenty-third day of the seventh month he sent the people away to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for the good that the Lord had done for David, for Solomon, and for his people Israel. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and Solomon successfully accomplished all that came into his heart to make in the house of the Lord and in, in his own house. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, 
and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you walk before me as your father David walked, and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man as ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name I will cast out of my sight, and I will make, and will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Then they will answer, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this calamity on them. Well, those words are, are almost prophetic, aren't they? They just show how Solomon was going to go astray. They aren't really a prophecy. They're, they are a, um, how can I say, a, a warning. You know, uh, if you disobey, these will be the consequences. But uh, Solomon indeed did go that route, and it's just disappointing, isn't it, when you think about it? Within the space of just a few decades, the nation of Israel had gone from this height of, of glory to the depths of idolatry and their king and all the rest. So uh, take heed. It doesn't take very long for us to, uh, like I said this morning, get, get uh, wobbly go uh, sideways and, uh, and suddenly find out that we're not standing where we are supposed to be standing uh, in Christ. So, all right. Any testimonies tonight? I, we put that in the bulletin often. I don't always uh, follow through with uh, calling on you to share anything. Do you have anything this evening you'd like to share? I'll give you a minute to think about that. I uh, will give a little testimony just Thanksgiving about what happened yesterday with the uh, hackathon, as we call it, and uh, we're able to uh, add a new uh, index, topical index, to one of the Bibles and publish that. Uh, we have some other changes that need to be made to that particular Bible, uh, so it's ready for publication, but uh, it's, it's uh, out there in beta test form, as we call it, so it's, it is available for people to use. We don't have too many people using it, but... I was also pleased that uh, I could see that um, Haitian Creole and uh, what was the other one? Hakka, I think, Hakka Chin, up 300 and 200 users respectively in the last uh, month. So we have achieved now a total user count of just over 20,000 on all the Bibles that we're doing. So I thank the Lord for that adoption and, uh, and work that God's Word is able to do in those hearts. We have a uh, topic that I wanted to share with you tonight, and uh, I neglected to print out these notes, but they are available on the website for you, and uh, they're in an easy format, just a regular, uh, print it out on a regular sheet of paper, and uh, you'll have it, instead of the kind of, uh, you know, foldy thing that we often do. But uh, the, the topic was, um, is this, I, I wrote what I called a quick guide to the deity of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. And this is kind of the two threads of thought that feed into this. One is I've been uh, thinking about this, reading some material that, uh, from a former Muslim 
who came to faith in Christ. And this is one of the huge issues for them, that they just have a tough time believing in the, the deity of Christ. And, the, and one of the reasons, two of the reasons are really theologically for them, they have a problem with uh, anything, anyone making uh, competitive claims to deity besides their God. And, uh, and then also because Jesus is called the Son of Man so often in Scripture, they take that phrase, Son of Man, and they, they say, well, he's a Son of Man, he's a man, period. And they point to the human side of Christ uh, with regard to his hunger and being tired and uh, sleeping and, and uh, those sorts of things and say, well, you know, obviously he's got qualities of a man, so he's a man. You know, Allah and their theology would not have any of that. And, of course, we are careful to, to respond. You know, listen, when you say that, it's all true that he's, he's a man, he's got all those qualities, but he has another set of qualities as well. And uh, this is the mystery of the hypostatic union, which is hard for those friends to, to accept. But it's essential uh, to get over that a hurdle for them. The other thing was that we were given a gift uh, of a new Bible that I don't know if you all have heard about, but it's called the Legacy Standard Bible, and it's basically a, an update of the New American Standard Bible. So some of you have, few, very few of you have had an American Standard version, which harkens back to uh, 1901, I think, a translation, and then it was updated in the 70s, and then in the 90s, the New American Standard Bible. So there's the NASB, and that's in the 70s, and then the NASB 95 was updated in 1995. And there's a later edition of that, and I've gotten a little bit mixed up on the, on the dates of it, but there was one that just recently came out. And then this revision, and I'm not sure the, the kind of, how can I say, the relationship between the Legacy Standard Bible and the latest New American Standard uh, Lockman Foundation produced this uh, Legacy Standard Bible in conjunction, I think, with the faculty at Master's Seminary. And uh, there are a couple of interesting features of that Bible. One is that it's a very literal translation. A second is that it prefers uh, and, and tries to be consistent about using the title Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, -E <laughs> if I spelled that right, in the Old Testament, instead of Jehovah or as we often see in some translations, capital L and then lowercase, not lowercase, but small caps, O-R-D. And the reason that they do that is because, first of all, you, you, know, you know that there's several words that are translated Lord, and it can be a little confusing as to which one it is. Um, secondly, that was the way that God told Moses to instruct the people of Israel about who it was that sent him. And this was the revealed name of God, and so these translators feel that it's high time to move beyond the um, oh, somewhat sometimes superstitious idea that we can't use that, that word the best way that we understand how it's pronounced. And so I've been careful about using that, almost never using it from the pulpit, just because it's uh, potentially offensive to our Jewish friends. And, uh, but I don't have a superstition, if you will, of that nature. So uh, I enjoyed being able to uh, open that Bible and uh, 
just you know check that out and see. It's a very nicely done hardcover Bible in this case. has wide margins, fairly good sized print. Uh, and so it will be, I don't know how the adoption of it will be, if it will become you know well used or not, but uh, it would pop right up towards the top. As far as I know right now from my review, pop up to the top of my list of, of Bibles. I, I wouldn't say to the very top, but at least when people ask me, what are your top you know, three, four, or five Bibles in English, I would certainly bring that to the table now um, when you know, it wasn't, didn't exist before. So but what I did was I took that new Bible and I just used it to produce this study. So the translations that I'm going to share with you here are from that Bible, and uh, you'll see maybe some differences from what you're used to. But I thought it would be instructive for us especially because it uses the personal name of God in the Old Testament. You can see that come through in this study. So we're going to look at the deity of Christ in the Bible over the next few minutes. And I've really this very simple, it's just a lot of scripture. Um, sometimes you may have had the question in your mind, uh, I mean, you know, people make a forceful argument that Jesus is not fully God, um, and, you know, you look at Deuteronomy 6.4, and it says, that, you know, that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you say one is not the same as three. Okay, I'm pretty smart. I can figure that out. And uh, so what do you, you know, how do you handle that? Um, and it may trouble you in a, in a darker moment to think, well, maybe I'm not supposed to, maybe I'm not worshiping God correctly if I'm not following the, the teaching of both Old and New Testament. And so what I did is I just collected a number of verses of Scripture that show us that Jesus is, in fact, deity. He has that character, if you will. He is God. Um, and I think I have, yeah, I have John 1, 1 in here. I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, and, and kind of give you a, a little bit of an overview of different views that are, that are current with regard to this idea of Jesus being God. Uh, first of all, Paul calls Jesus God. If you look at Romans 9, 5, and I'll try to give you a moment to turn to these portions as we go to them. Romans 9, 5, the uh, scripture says, speaking of the Jews, of the Jewish people, uh, Paul wishing that he could be accursed from Christ for his brothers, uh, his countrymen according to the flesh, they're Israelites. And then he talks about the benefits that they have to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, service of God, and the promises. And then he says, of whom, of these Israelites, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Remember that Romans 1, 3, and 4, according to the flesh and according to the spirit of holiness. Remember the two perspectives that we looked at about the person, work of Christ. So according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, by any regular rules of grammar, you're going to have to say that the eternally blessed God is some kind of additional description or appositional phrase or explanation of who Christ is. Now, if you're not of the persuasion that we are, you're going to be able to find a, an explanation strained though it may be to say, well, Paul's really not talking about Jesus. He's just making an exclamation about Jesus the Christ came, who is over all, and, uh, you know, God be blessed, kind of an exclamation off to the side, but it doesn't, uh, 
read that way to me hasn't for many years as I've looked at this text. The other one that I called out from Paul is Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13. You're familiar with that verse, I'm sure. I alluded to it this morning, although not to this part of it. In Titus 2.13, Paul says that Christians are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of whom? One person titled our great God and Savior, and you could almost put a dash there, his name is Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. You have uh, two personal nouns, God and Savior, connected by uh, and, who refer to the same one self-same person, okay? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a similar construction in 2 Peter chapter 1, where Peter calls Jesus God as well. What I'm doing here, uh, folks, is I'm making a, a cumulative case that if you have Paul calling Jesus God and Peter, and we're going to see John and Thomas and Luke and Mark and all of them, then you have a super strong case. It's almost like sometimes when we're in those dark moments, we kind of have lost, because we don't have these all memorized right on the tip of our tongue, we're kind of like, does the Bible really teach that? But I have like four and a half pages of this stuff here. It's not like it's hidden. It's there, but we can lose track of it. So Peter says in 2 Peter 1.1, Simon Peter, a bond servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One person referred to there, connected by that word and, two personal names or titles, uh, singular, referring to one person, Jesus Christ, altogether. Okay? So, we have Paul and we have Peter. Well, let's go to John. Perhaps you might think uh, of him first, and he's the strongest of them all, you might say. Uh, certainly very plain in his writing. Having written later in the first century, he has the benefit of further theological reflection on the person, you know, just who was the person that he met when he was called to be an apostle. And in John 1, 1, it says in the Legacy Standard Bible, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that verse although short, is packed with theological truth. Let's think about it for a moment. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Be, without going much you know, into great depth, we can already see that John is identifying the Word as God. And if you have any question about who that Word is, you drop down to verse 14, and it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So obviously it's talking about Jesus. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. But back to John 1, 1, it says, the word was God. And I wish I had my Greek text with me here. I haven't brought it to the pulpit, but let's think about it in English. You could, you could have various combinations of this. You could have God was the word. You could have the word was 
the God, and you can have the Word was God. And John has chosen very carefully that latter option. If you said that God was the Word, you would basically have a unitary deity, not a triune deity, a unitary deity. God was the Word who came, and God then the Father became a man, is what that would indicate. On the other hand, if you had, that was God was the Word, if you had the Word was the God, then you would have the same thing. You would have, in effect, Christ Jesus being the God, the one and only. But then if you have the Word was God with no article in front of the Word God, what grammarians have understood is that it gives a qualitative uh, expression of the qualities of this Word. And so this wording prevents John's words from being taken in, uh, in uh, say, the direction of Arianism, where Jesus is not deity, or uh, in the direction of, um, uh, what's the word, Unitarianism, I guess you would say. But here it's saying the word has the qualities that are God's qualities. The word was deity. We could say more about that, but I'll leave it at that because I've already lost half of you probably, so I don't want to do that. Um, the Word was God. John 1.18, uh, since we're in John, here is another one. It says, no one has seen God at any time. Now, this is uh, interesting. The uh, New King James says, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. But in the LSB, it has, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Okay, so uh, I don't know what translation you might have, but there is a textual difference here between huias, son, and theos, God. And so you have this issue that uh, these translators in the LSB and many of the newer translations, NIV, probably ESV, is your ESV you have the ESV with you? No, you have the NASB. You got a NASB. Does it say only begotten God in 118? John 118? Yeah, only begotten God. So it's a very interesting kind of phrase, and uh, it might offend your sensibilities if you've been raised on the King James or New King James. You say, wait a minute, that's not what I read. I read the only begotten Son. But you have to recognize that there is a variant there in the text, in the Greek text, and that's why these translators have chosen to follow those older, what they believe older and better manuscripts. I don't have time to get into all that today, but we'll just expose it to you briefly and say, yes, we understand that there are textual differences in some of the manuscripts. And then 1 John 5.20, 1 John and 5.20 uh, since I'm in the section on John, I thought I'd better put this in there, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, the, the last phrase there is a little oblique enough that it can be debated because of the pronouns this and his son, and so on, but I'll leave it in here for my purposes and uh, for our understanding. 
John has a very high view of, of who Jesus is. But not only John, and not only Peter, and not only Paul, but also another of the apostles who wasn't a writing apostle, but his name was Thomas. And when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Uh, when he put his hand in, you know, checked out his hands and his side and all that, he said, my Lord and my God. Now, please don't accuse Thomas of, you know, just saying, you know, how people say, my God, like when something bad happens or something like that. That's not what he's doing here. He's addressing the Lord Jesus as his Lord and his God. Every place in the New Testament that calls Jesus Lord is another witness to the deity of Christ. This one is just one of them where Thomas calls him both Lord and God. I'll justify that statement in just a few moments, by the way, but I thought I'd just introduce it here. When you're reading your New Testament, how many times does it say the Lord Jesus Christ? Any idea? I didn't even count. I can't tell you. I certainly can't tell you in the Legacy Standard Bible because I don't have electronically, so I can't go through and just count every one by hand. I didn't spend the time to do that, so uh, it is quite a lot. Now, besides those men, you also have Matthew, the apostle, speaking of Jesus as God. And as these pile up, I hope you see that, boy, it becomes more and more clear that uh, this is a very important and basic teaching of the Scriptures, not hidden, not obscure. Matthew calls Jesus God in Matthew one twenty three. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. What is, what is that but saying that when Jesus came, he is God with us? The name Emmanuel is transliterated from the Hebrew. Im, I am, meaning with in this particular case. Manu, us. There's a suffix attached there. It's actually sort of infix in this particular word. And then the final suffix meaning God, E-L, is short for Elohim. Emmanuel, with us, God. It's God with us. And, of course, Matthew adds in Matthew 28, 19, that all uh, authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the one shared name of deity between all three of them. And I suppose maybe you're like me, and you haven't really pondered the idea in verse 18 where Jesus says, uh, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does that mean exactly? He's in charge of everything. Well, who is that but God, right? Yeah, the Father has entrusted that authority to the Son, and then He in turn, commands us with that authority to be witnesses for him uh, in verse 19 and verse 20. Now, there's another interesting one that you might have overlooked or not thought of before, but I added here another section of my notes, not about Matthew or Thomas or one of the other New Testament apostles, but some Old Testament guys. The sons of Korah, the sons of Korah call Jesus God. Look at Psalm 45, 6, and 7, and then also have your finger over in Hebrews 1. 
in Psalm 45, 6 to 7. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Now, you have to kind of puzzle over that for a second because it's a little can be a little confusing. Notice the psalmist is addressing God as you, your throne, O God. And then he says, God... Your God, the one that he just addressed as God, your God will anoint you. And so there are two designated as God. Isn't that kind of odd for a Jewish person to write something like that? And then I mentioned to have your finger over in Hebrews chapter 1, and I'll jump over there and remind you that the Bible says this, Hebrews 1.8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So this is the apostle writing inspired scripture here. God breathed words saying, to the, of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's calling the Son God. You know that Hebrews 1, as well as the rest of the book of Hebrews, is chock full of quotations from the Old Testament and are connecting those to the teaching of, of Jesus and the person or work of Christ. Okay, so your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Hebrews is a great book for this. There are a number of other portions of it as well. Um, let me go through a couple of others in a little more quick fashion here. Luke calls Jesus the Son of God. Mark calls him the Son of God. Paul calls him the Son of God. I'll just read a few verses, Luke 3, 23 to 38, the genealogy. It says, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, and then dot, 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 all the way down to verse 38, the Son of God. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Romans 1, 4 who was designated as the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The phrase Son of God refers to the fact that, first of all, He partakes of all of the qualities of deity, not that He is inferior to God. This is one of those big, big stumbling blocks that many people, either in Islam or Jehovah's Witnesses or others, stumble upon, they say, son, they immediately think of procreation in the human sense, immediately. And they make Christ analogous to our human experience. And what I'd rather have you do is make our human experience analogous to him. He came long before we did. God the Father's personal, closest possible personal relationship with the son is the kind of stuff of which our father-son relationships are made, not the reverse, okay? So the son means not procreation, not inferiority, not subordination, but that he has the closest possible personal relationship, and that's where we can benefit from the father-son analogy. And then he also has all of the qualities of deity. The son of the king 
is basically what? Kingly, isn't he? The eldest son of the king is going to be the next king in the human realm. And of course, in the divine realm, it's not quite the same because of the chronology doesn't work with two infinitely e- timeless eternal beings, but uh, the son, the son of God. All right, then I'm going to go through a couple of passages in the Old Testament where the New Testament quotes the Old, and uh, just listen to these. These will uh, really be interesting, I think, for you. The, the title Lord is used for Jesus when quoting Old Testament Yahweh passages. For example, let me give you one of them, and there's uh, one, two, three, four, five of these, I think, yes. Joel 2.31 says, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes. That is picked up by Peter in the New Testament in Acts 2.20, and he says it this way, The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Lord is the word kurios, the title applied throughout the New Testament to Jesus. So just, you know, part one. Here you have Yahweh in the Old Testament, Specifically in the New Testament, the apostles refer those texts to whom? None other than Jesus. Here's another example, Joel 2.32, the next verse. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be delivered. Romans 10.13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They're saying because Jesus, by the way, his name means Jehovah saves, or Yahweh saves, in fact, is what that is. Because of that, you call on the Lord and you will be saved. Exact parallel to the Old Testament text. It's clear from the context that the Lord refers to Jesus Christ. Or Romans 10.9 says, If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Acts 2.21 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The next verse in Acts 2, verse 22, tells us who Peter is speaking about. This Jesus of Nazareth is the one of whom he speaks. So they had a a revolution in their thinking, realizing, oh, wait a minute. The guy that was just walking with us, the very special guy, was actually Yahweh in the flesh. Wow. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. And then in the New Testament, you have a text like Ephesians 4, 5, where Paul testifies one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the Lord is referring to Jesus there. Okay, so he's getting very close to applying Deuteronomy 6, 4 directly to Christ. Isaiah 45 is another example. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. To me, to who? To God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. What does Philippians 2.11 say? Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul takes Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, referring to God and says, actually, wake up, folks. We're talking about Jesus the Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then my final example of this type of example is in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice is calling, Prepare the way for Yahweh in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. 
I notice I have a thing there to fix. Uh, did you get that? Prepare for Yahweh and for God a smooth path. John 1.23 said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, makes it clear here that John is referring to the Lord Jesus, the light in John 1, 7 to 8, the word of John 1, 1 and 14, the lamb of 136, and also Mark uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, in which the context is likewise clear that Jesus is the one whose way is made straight. John is saying, I'm here to make straight the way of Jesus, that is, the way of the Lord, that is, the way of God, that is, the way of Yahweh from the prophet Isaiah. So it's super clear there, that parallel. And, and somebody said, well, why doesn't the Bible just come out and say so? Well, I mean, what does John 1, 1 do? The Word was God. How much more do you have? I mean, how else can you explain the Trinity in more clear terms than the Bible has done? You know, theologians have tried to do it over the years uh, and, you know, oft find themselves in deep waters that they're, you know, nearly drowning in when they try to do that. But it is pretty clear, isn't it? What about this? Hebrews on my Bible still there because I didn't turn to all those other ones. Hebrews 1.6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Not just who is worthy of angelic worship, but God alone. Well, maybe it's the highest angel, somebody says. Oh, please. <laughs> Don't stretch the scriptures so far, my friends. Let all the angels of God worship him. Revelation 5, 11 to 13. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. How many more words do they have to add before you get the idea that they're worshiping the Son? To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be the blessing and honor and glory and the might forever. And ever. Angels worshiping him. Well, again, I said I was making a cumulative case. After you add all of these things up, what do you come to as a conclusion? I'm not done yet. John says Jesus that, sorry, John says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5. You remember the vision of Isaiah. I saw the Lord high and lifted up on a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. He looked at him and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the, the Lord of glory. And, and John 12 says, These things Jesus spoke, and, and he went away. But though he had done so many signs before them, they still were not believing in him. So that the word of the Lord, I'm sorry, so that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke about him. And I said this before, but all of those pronouns, him, his, him, he, all refer back to Jesus grammatically in this passage. We are talking about Isaiah seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And why shouldn't he have? Because Jesus did make pre-incarnate appearances to humankind, didn't he? Many times throughout the Old Testament. Jesus was seen by 
by uh, Isaiah. I don't know that I, uh, I didn't include this, I think, but I could. Um, Abraham, the Bible says, rejoiced to do what? To see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Well, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? No, but Abraham saw him. Yes, he did see Abraham, but Abraham saw him. Uh, Jesus also does or is things that only God does or is. Fix these in your mind, would you? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. How can that be unless Jesus is omnipresent? Matthew 9, 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Who could do that but someone who's omniscient? Matthew 12, 25, And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, There's omniscience again. Matthew 8, 27, The men marveled and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Omnipotence. Okay. Mark 2, 5 and 7, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Wow, who can forgive sins but God alone, the Bible says after that, the accusation made against him. So omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, forgiving sins, these are you know, things only God is. John 5, 22 and 27, For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of of man. So here you have the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, forgiver of sins, also being appointed the judge of all the earth. Anytime somebody says something like, yeah, I know I'm going to go before God and be judged. What they're saying is, I'm going to go before Jesus, who is God, and I'm going to be judged because God, if you will, has delegated that judgment to his son. Powerful idea, isn't it? John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Eternality. John 1, 3, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. He is the creator. Look, if you came to somebody and said, here, I've got a person who is omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, who forgives sins, who's eternal, who's the creator, who's going to be the judge of all mankind, who would you think that is? God? Good guess. Colossians 1.15, who is the, this is speaking of Jesus again, who is the image of the invisible God, the image of the invisible God. He shares the divine essence with the Father. Colossians 1.16, for in him all things were created and he is before all things. There's his eternality, there's his creator role, and in him all things hold together. So if you added to all those things I just said and say, and by the way, he sustains all things, who would you have? None other than God. Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus, who is the radiance of His glory, that is God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Again, here's shared divine essence. Here's the fact that He's the sustainer. Jesus is and does things that only God is and does. And then finally, two more verses, and I'll let you go here. Jesus is one with the Father. John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And then John 14, verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. That mutual indwelling. It's not like one is in the other, it's one is in the other, and the other is in the first. Okay, That mutual, two-directional indwelling that I've mentioned before. Probably it's been some time since I've talked about that, but a fascinating notion, isn't it? The Father and the Son are one, John 10.30 and John 14.10 and 11. Well, if you think of any other verses that you'd like to send a, a note to me or mention, I'd certainly love to add them to this list, but those are ones that I studied in the Legacy Standard Bible this past week and wanted to share with you tonight to, to strengthen and bolster your faith. Look at there are people out there that are very zealous for their faith, their misdirected faith, and they've been taught how to respond to us when we say that Jesus is God. We ought to be able to give a reason for why we believe that and take people to Scripture and say, look at this and this and this and this. Is that not enough? Okay, look at these other five verses. Is that not enough? Look at these other five verses. You know, just keep on piling on. You have this uh, now at your disposal. Feel free to share it uh, with folks and use it uh, to help them to understand that it's Jesus whom we worship. There is nobody like him. There's no Savior like him. There's no Savior but our God. There's no one who came in the flesh and claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be God, does the works of God, has the characteristics of God, predicted that he would die and rise again from the dead, and then he went about doing it so that he could die for our sins and then complete our justification. No other religious figure, no other religion, nothing has anything like that. This is totally unique, and it fits who we know God to be, the totally unique and uh, ever-living God with uh, wisdom beyond wisdom and the plan of salvation. Let us pray tonight as we close. Father, we extol your name, and we add to extol the name of our Savior and the Spirit of God as well, who is worthy of all glory and honor and blessing and power and might and dominion above all that is named in this earth or the world or the universe. Let all the angels of God worship him, Lord. May they be there busy worshiping him as many in our world have today, but too many have not, and help us to worship him as well. Remember, the scriptures are very clear about this, what we might say is a complicated or sophisticated idea of a three-in-one God, and yet it's plainly shown to us in a number of these portions of scripture that this has to be true. And we thank you for showing us that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, remember that those notes are available on the website at fbcaa.org slash docs in a PDF format. And uh, if you don't have a PDF reader, uh, it's easy enough to get one. So you can see those, print them out if you want to, and, uh, and hopefully that will be helpful. You can share that link as, uh, in an email or actually download the document and attach the document to an email or another message and share it with somebody if you want to, uh, to do that. Yes? Yes. Yes, and in fact, uh, Tuesday is the fairly short procedure of getting the port in. Oh, only three hours. Okay. This is pretty major. I mean... Can you imagine? Yeah, this is, uh, this is a very serious issue that uh, Becky's niece has to deal with. Getting the port on Tuesday, that itself, I mean, when you say 
three-hour surgery and recovery and all that. That's, most of us wouldn't like that. But that's just the precursor to eight hours on Friday of receiving her first chemo treatment. So please pray for her on Tuesday, especially on Friday. And uh, don't forget, and I'm sure Becky will remind us right along, <laughs> don't hesitate to do that. We need those reminders. But uh, she's going to be in this for months. Months. So imagine yourself in that case, having to get that kind of treatment to try to beat back those awful, evil cancer cells. Yeah. Father, we pray that you would help uh, our dear friend and sister, we understand, in the Lord, Heidi, with all this coming up this week. God, would you make the treatments effectual to knock down this cancer and get it under control, get it beaten back to a more uh, manageable level where they can have a surgery or whatever. And especially those are ladies who have uh, fought this battle themselves, maybe we could say in a lesser uh, severe version, but still they know the fear and the anxiety and the difficulties and all the everything regarding this. And so I pray that they would be in deep prayer for this dear one who is uh, attached to our uh, sister Becky very closely in her heart. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, you're welcome. You assure her that we've prayed for her, and we're trusting the Lord for, for good work there. Folks, we've got to let you go at 7.15. Yeah, run out there between the raindrops. Uh, I understand the kids had a little bit of a treasure hunt uh, this evening around the building, so you might go peek around and see what they found at the end of the, uh, at the, end of the treasure hunt there. So... All right, good night, everybody.